The following resource is from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're starting tonight to look at Pilgrim's Progress, and uh, you've got a, a kind of a course overview. Um, do I need more? I made 50, so there should be enough. So, um, If you have a copy of the book, Pilgrim's Progress, I mean a copy of the one that Bunyan wrote and not um, maybe a children's version or a synopsis, you really want to bring the one that Bunyan wrote, you should bring it. Um, because we're gonna, our, our desire here is just read through the the text, not all of it, but sections of it. Talk about it, see what it teaches us about the Christian life. Um, if you look at the handout that I gave you, can you see it? The course overview. Raise your hand if you don't have one of these yet. Getting there. Up in the front. We've got nine weeks. Um, to look at this. We're just going to be looking at part one. That's Christian. We're not going to get to Christiana. Um, I don't mean anything by that. There's only just so much time. So um, maybe we'll have a chance to look at at that another time. But we've got nine weeks, and it's going to be a press to just get through this section anyway. Um, And what I've done is I've broken the the story into stages of journey. Um, Nine of them. There were ten originally. Um, but we only have nine weeks, so we kind of have to do it in nine stages. Um, and we're just going to be following through his journey. Um, there's a, an outline of Pilgrim's Progress that I got off the Internet, and that's on the second page, and that's the ten stages. Um, and we're going to be talking about uh, aspects of each of this, and you can look at that just... But, but best of all is this map. And that, see, that's what you want to use, is the, is the picture, Okay. This is vital. And, and, you know, I think this is one of the, the keys to the enduring popularity of Pilgrim's Progress. Let me read a quote um, from uh, a professor at Princeton University. And this is what he says. Why Pilgrim's Progress is such a success. He says this. In my own estimation, next to the Bible, which is in a class by itself, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress rates, rates highest among all classics. The reason I have to put Pilgrim's Progress next only to the Bible is that as I proceed along the appointed course, I need not only an authoritative book of inspiration and instruction, the Bible, but I need a map. We all do. My considered judgment is that Bunyan's masterpiece has provided us with the most excellent map to be found anywhere. Uh, Why, having read and, uh, and reread the book some 50 times, I see that map most vividly unfold under my gaze in whatever place or situation I find myself, what clearer answer could one find to his basic questions? What kind of place is this and what should I do in this situation? What more adequate, adequate climax to the human quest for truth? And so I think it's this reason that, Bill, uh, that Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, has such enduring appeal, is that it gives us a sense of a map, doesn't it? And yet it takes somebody, an artist, to come along and do it for us. So this is on uh, a children's version of Pilgrim's Progress that we got out of our own church library. And no, you can't have it. I've taken it out. Um, But there it is. It's on the inside there. And you'll want to keep referring to that and looking at it as we move along in our journey. There are certain way stations along the way, and they're mapped out there very well. 
If you have your Bibles tonight, um, take, if you would, and look at John chapter 14. In John 14, Jesus is giving comfort to His disciples the night uh, before He is crucified. And He says there in John 14, beginning at verse 1, He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in Me. And then He says this, In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with Me that you also may be where I am. And then he says in verse 4, you know the way to the place where I am going. Now what do you think of verse 4? How does that relate to Pilgrim's Progress? What connection, Landis, what connection do you see between John 14.4 and Pilgrim's Progress? How do you know that? <laughs> the more famous verse, two verses later, John 14:6. But if you look at 14:5, you know Thomas says to him, "Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way?" And he says, "I am the way and the truth and the life." What's interesting is that Christianity initially was called the way, the way. I think that Southern Baptists have lost a sense of that, haven't they? Namely, that after conversion, there's a journey to be traveled that walking the aisle, signing the card, praying the prayer, all those things is the beginning, not the end. And that there's a journey to be traveled afterwards. It's almost like there's this mentality of, well, I've done that, now what? Well, just bide your time, have a good time, try to stay out of trouble, right? <laughs> try to do a few good things if you can. And then when the time comes, you've got it, salvation, because you prayed this prayer, you see? Uh, that is not biblical Christianity, is it? Instead, there's a journey to be traveled. Now, what is the nature of that journey? As you look at the New Testament, I'm not even into Pilgrim's Progress yet, but what is the nature of that journey that we're traveling? Growth. growth. Tell me more about that, Bob. What does that mean? What kind of growth? That's right. And it's very much like a journey. It really is. Now, um, in a Beacon article that I wrote, and you can read it, um, but I'll synopsize what I said, almost every religion has an, uh, uh, a um, uh, concept of a pilgrimage, right? Uh, you look at pagan religions, for example. In the Greek times, they had Greek city-states, um, and it was a good thing if you could have an oracle or a shrine in your city. Why? Because people would come from miles around to that place, and they would worship that, that god or goddess. And in doing so, they would also bring money. For example, Artemis of the Ephesians, right? You would go and worship Artemis of the Ephesians. And the, and the idea, the concept there was that the god or goddess had a certain scope of power, a certain locality, a, a realm, a region, a city that you would go. And if you went there, you would be able to sacrifice to that god or goddess, worship him or her, etc. And so people would make pilgrimages to, that, to the shrine. Uh, Hinduism has that concept. You can go to sacred rivers washed in the river Ganges along with another million people or so. Um, you've ever seen pictures of some of these uh, Hindu pilgrims going to various places. Again, the same idea. They are polytheistic and there's a sense of locality of power, right? Um, 
Islam has a pilgrimage. Scott, you just took a class on, on Islam, didn't you? One of the, isn't that one of the five pillars of Islam? What is what is that called? Yeah, and if you make that pilgrimage, you're, it's called a hajj. You're a haji, right? Um, and sometimes it's added to your name because you've made the pilgrimage to Mecca. All right? Medieval Catholicism had pilgrimages. Do you ever hear about some of these things? Like if they had a bone of one of the saints, you know, like the finger of St. Anselm or a or, um, piece of the cross, you know, or the shroud or something like that, uh, they were thought to have a certain healing power to them. And you would travel there and go along the road and um, eventually get there and you would you know, perhaps kneel down or touch the thing and pray and you'd receive some kind of healing power. But a lot of this is coming from paganism, right? In England, there was a particular pilgrimage that many people made um, to where the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket, had been killed. And so they would make these pilgrimages and they're written about in Chaucer's Canterbury's Ta- Canterbury Tales. These are stories that are told along the road of the pilgrimage. That is the backdrop that Bunyan had in mind. The pilgrimages that were made, I think, to Canterbury. But the Christian pilgrimage is very different than all of these, isn't it? How is Christian pilgrimage different than all the ones that I've listed here? The pagan ones in the Greek city-states, the Hindu or Buddhist. When we were missionaries in Japan, Chris, do you remember the guys with the big straw hats and and the staffs? Did you ever see those guys? They had bags on them and little bells and they'd walk around. And, and Shikoku, where we lived, they had something like 26 different shrines and they go from place to place. And you'd get little credit for each place that you went. How is the Christian pilgrimage different than all of these? It's internal. Okay? Tell me more about that, Tanya. How is it an internal process? So it's internal pilgrimage. That is significant. Paul, what else? I was going to say also, when, when I was thinking of being pilgrimage to physical places, when you're done, you're done. And mm-hmm. we're not going to be done this side of heaven. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's always, if we're here, there's something more that God wants right. to do. What's the destination in Pilgrim's Progress? It's the celestial city, right? That tells you right there. You're not finished till you're finished. And if you sit down on the journey, you've stopped making progress. You're not making progress anymore as a pilgrim. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, if it's as Isaiah 35, yeah, it implies the way of holiness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right, the way of holiness. And then, I mean, if you look at the map, you see the little kind of road that's on there that we're following. You see it? It starts in the lower right-hand corner, the city of destruction. That's where Christian begins. And actually, his name isn't originally Christian. Does anyone know what it is originally? Graceless. That's right. Isn't that great? Graceless. He starts out with the name of Graceless from the city of destruction, and his name is changed to Christian. So that's a marvelous, marvelous thing. But you see that road that he's traveling there. According to John 14:6, what is that road? Jesus is the road. He's the way. And it's through abiding in Christ, as he's going to teach in John 15, through remaining in him, staying close with him, that you make progress as a pilgrim. The way is actually a person. Not only that, the destination is a person. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to what? The Father 
except through me. And so the celestial city really is the Father. Intimate, face-to-face fellowship with God himself. So the, the way is a person and the destination is a person. These other things are physical. They're tied to our earthly existence and they're pagan and they're no part of true Christianity. But what Bunyan has done brilliantly is pick up on the concept and give us a picture physically of a spiritual journey that is very, very useful in the Christian life. I think about it often. And there's a lot of people I know that read through Pilgrim's Progress every year. It's really not that long. And I think it's beneficial to set before you the fact that you have a pilgrimage to make and that you can't stay put where you are. Well, that's just by way of introduction. What I'd like to do now is actually just read a section. What I've done is I've copied, I've got nine copies of this, all right? It's done very artlessly. It's ugly as anything. I'll show you what I mean. I just stuck it on there. I did it about 20 minutes before our prayer meeting, but there it is. And I've got 10 of them. Um, But I'm urging you to get a copy of Pilgrim's Progress and bring it. Because not only is there benefit in the overall skeletal structure, the map, the sense of what way stations there are along the way, but even more, the discussions that they have along the way and the skill that Bunyan uses in language to communicate, you just can't, you can't get it with one of the children's versions or any of the other things because he's got a genius for the English language. So I'm going to pass these out and um, I've got my own and the rest of you just listen along. Um, just take one, uh, married couples. I've only got about nine or ten, so maybe one per row. <laughs> um, but please, next time, bring one if you would. And Jack, you said you had a couple copies, right? Yeah. Bring them in. All right, let's start from the beginning. Bunyan wrote, by the way, Pilgrim's Progress while he was incarcerated in the Bedford Jail. It was, a, it was a jail on a bridge, actually. So there's a river flowing under him, and, and he was there, and he was incarcerated. He was in prison because he preached. He was, uh, he was an unlicensed preacher. Um, and he was a Baptist. He was a Congregationalist. And um, they, they locked him up, and basically he could get out any time if he would promise not to preach, and he would never do that. And so he stayed in prison, and God used that time Uh, very well through him to write this Pilgrim's Progress and it says in the similitude of a dream and this is how he begins as I walked through the wilderness of this world I lighted on a certain place where was a den that refers I think to his jail and I laid me down in that place to sleep and as I slept I dreamed a dream I dreamed and behold I saw a man clothed with rags standing in a certain place with his face from his own house a book in his hand and a great burden upon his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein. And as he read, he wept and trembled. And not being able longer to contain, he break out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? Let's just stop there. How How does he begin? How does Pilgrim's Progress begin? He's got a dream and he talks about himself. He says, I walked along the line. I lay down in a den and I had a dream. So now we're into the dream. What does he see in his dream? He sees a man, first of all. He's, he's dreaming of a man. And he's carrying a tremendous burden. Okay? What else does he say about him? He's got a book in his hand. And he's impoverished. He's covered with rags. And then finally, what else? What's his mental state? Say again? He, he feels himself to be hopeless. He cries out with a lamentable sigh, saying, What shall I do? He's deeply distressed about his condition. That's kind of important, isn't it? 
I think we kind of skip that these days in evangelism, don't we? We don't really want to see anybody deeply distressed. We've come to bring them good news, right? We're bearers of good news. We, we're, we're kind of failing in our evangelism if at any point somebody breaks out a lamentable sigh and says, what shall I do? We're supposed to be bearers of good tidings, right? But here is Bunyan beginning with a man covered in rags with a terrible burden on his back and breaking out a lamentable uh, sigh saying, what shall I do? Well, skipping ahead, he goes home to his family and his wife takes him in and she doesn't understand why he's all upset. His children don't understand why he's all upset. And this is what it says. At this, his relations were sore amazed. Not for they believed what he said to them was true, namely that they lived in a city of destruction and that wrath was going to come on their whole city and that everyone who lived in that city was going to suffer wrath. They didn't believe that, but they were concerned about him because they thought that some frenzied distemper had got into his head. And therefore, it drawing towards night, they hoped that sleep might settle his brains. And with all haste, they got him to bed. But the night was as troublesome to him as the day. Wherefore, instead of sleeping, he spent it in sighs and tears. So when the morning was come, they would know how he did. And he told them, worse and worse. He also set to talking to them again, but they began to be hardened. They also thought to drive away his distemper by harsh and surly carriages to him. Sometimes they would deride, and sometimes they would chide, and sometimes they would quite neglect him. And so this is the relationship between somebody who's under conviction of sin, struggling with their soul, and their family members who aren't. And I think perhaps many of us can relate to this and say, you know, I myself have gone through certain things and my family did not understand. Let's say my parents or my wife or my children didn't understand. What is Bunyan underscoring here, though? There's a sense of solitariness to the Christian life, isn't there? Every man, every woman, every child stands alone before God. And eventually, he's going to begin his journey alone. His family's not going to come with him. What does that remind you of in Scripture? Jesus talked about that, didn't he? Do you remember? That's right. A father against his child, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And Jesus said, if you love father or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love your wife, your husband more than me, you're not worthy of me. And so he deals very directly right away with the suffering that comes from a family that's not convicted. Now, later on, she is convicted of sin and begins the journey herself. That's part two, but not at this point. Well, he begins walking through a field and as he's walking through the field, he continues to read in his book. Reading his book, he's greatly distressed in his mind and as he read, as he read, he burst out as he had done before, crying out, what shall I do to be saved? That's a direct quote from scripture, isn't it? That's what they said, uh, the Philippian jailer said, uh, also the people at the day of Pentecost. And I think again, it underscores our need in evangelism to bring people to this point. If we're not bringing, or instruments of the Holy Spirit, bringing people to this point, they will not be saved. And guess what? We're going to meet people later on in the journey who never came to this point. They're happy to make the journey. They're trotting along with Christian, but they didn't enter at the narrow gate and they have no burden on their back. They're never convicted of sin. We're going to meet one in a minute named Pliable. No concern whatsoever over sin, but here's Christian. And he's lamenting. And again, where is this sense of conviction coming from? What's the source of it? from the book in his hand. He's reading this book and it causes his burden to be increased. Why do you think it is that we skip this stage these days? Why is it we don't do much lamenting over sin? Why is it we don't really even seek to see that in the lost people that we're reaching out to? 
What's the reason? What do you think, Josh? What's the reason for that? Oprah tells us we're okay. <laughs> You're okay, I'm okay. That's right. And it's all okay. Also, I, I think there's a, it's not it's very much a bottom line chase mentality, what you're going to present, and just that, that groundwork for building up the, the awareness of things just kind of gets glossed over by whoever wants, mm-hmm. wants the cards dealt out as soon as possible. That's right. That's right. That's right. And I think if you really press it, you talk to somebody who's an evangelist, who's witnessing in this manner, avoiding the law, avoiding bringing conviction, the deal is that it's unpleasant to be with somebody who's under conviction. They may lash out at you. They may actually shoot the messenger. They may persecute you. They may reject what you're saying and lash back. And we don't like that. It's uncomfortable. And so therefore... We try to avoid discomfort. We want a pleasurable lifestyle here. We want our neighbors to like us. We want our family members to like us. We want our church members to like us. And so we're going to weed out those uncomfortable aspects of the, of the gospel so that we can have a pleasurable experience. And so the evangelist and the evangelized both have the same goal, to get through this experience in a pleasurable way. And there's a way to do it, isn't there? But that way is not the way that leads to eternal life. And you have to be willing as an evangelist to pay the price and to bring somebody to this point of conviction. Well, at this point, he's already at the point of conviction and he needs an evangelist to tell him where to go. He didn't know what to do. And so he says, I perceive he could not tell which way to go. I looked and then uh, I saw a man named Evangelist coming to him who asked, Wherefore dost thou cry? He answered, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die and after that to come to judgment. And I find that I am not willing to do the first, nor am I able to do the second. Then said Evangelist, Why not willing to die, since this life is attended with so many evils? The man answered, Because I fear that this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave. And, sir, if I be not fit to go to prison, I am not fit, I am sure, to go to judgment, and from thence to execution. And the thoughts of these things make me cry. Then said Evangelist, If this be thy condition, why standest thou still? He answered, because I know not whither to go. Then he gave him a parchment roll where there was written within, flee from the wrath to come. Josh and I were talking about this the other day, why we don't preach hell very much. And I think it's connected to the statement that I made earlier. It's uncomfortable. But the Bible tells us to flee the wrath to come. What is the wrath to come? What is that referring to? Josh? And that's what the city of destruction is all about. If you live in there, you're subject to the wrath of God. And we are commanded to flee the wrath of God. Flee the wrath of God. And Bunyan puts it in pictorial form, like a journey. Get out of this city. And in the book of Revelation, it speaks of the city of Babylon. Come out of her that you might not share her plagues. You know, Because there's, it's like Sodom and Gomorrah, like Lot. You need to get out of there. And so he needs to flee the wrath to come. But he's got a problem. This man with the burden on his back and the book in his hand. He's got a problem. He doesn't know where to go. And so evangelist has to come tell him where to go. This is another biblical doctrine, isn't it? How can they call on the name of the one they've never heard of? And how can they hear without a preacher? Somebody's got to come and tell them. Somebody's got to be evangelist. And so evangelist comes and tells him where to go. The man therefore read it and looking upon evangelist very carefully said, Whither must I fly? 
Then said Evangelist, pointing with his finger over a very wide field, Do you see yonder wicket gate? The man said, No. Then said the other, Do you see yonder shining light? He said, I think I do. Then said Evangelist, Keep that light in your eye and go directly thereto. So shalt thou see the gate, at which when thou knockest it shall be told thee what to do. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his door, but his wife and children, perceiving it, began to run after him and to cry to him to return. But the man putting his, put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, Life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, but fled towards the middle of the plain. What an incredible picture. He's got his fingers in his ears and all he's thinking about is eternal life. And who is it that's calling after him at that particular moment? His wife, his children. Does he not care for them? Of course he does. He did everything he could to warn them, but they weren't listening. At this point, he is totally focused on one thing. The only one thing he wants. And what is it? He wants eternal life. He wants salvation from destruction. And he can have no distractions from that, even from his own family. This is a, an application or an extension of Jesus' statement. If you love your family more than me, you're not worthy of me. It's, it's a logical extension or connection of that verse, isn't it? It seems a little harsh, doesn't it? I mean, and later he's going to get grilled at one or two of these places. What about your family? Didn't you bring them? It's not like he's not encouraged to, to be concerned about his family, but he's got to be concerned about his own soul first. And they, at that point, are a temptation to turn away from Christ. So he's got his fingers in his ears and he's running across the field yelling, life, life, eternal life. Well, at this point, some neighbors kick in and we get two of them, obstinate and pliable. And one of the great things about Pilgrim's Progress are the characters you meet along the way and the names that they're given. An obstinate person is someone who's stubborn and unyielding and won't move in any way. And then there's a pliable person who's what? What do you think of when you think of somebody that's pliable? Flexible. You know, moldable. I think of, you remember Gumby? A, a green thing. Did you all have Gumby's years ago? I always split it up the middle at some point. After playing with it for a while, the leg, you know what I'm talking? Right up the middle. And he had like a wire in it. You could sh- go ahead. Scott, do you have a Gumby when you're growing up? Do you even know what I'm talking about? But you never had a Gumby. <laughs> the things you missed. But anyway. Huh? He knows Elmo. That's right. That's right. Well, anyway, there's a conversation between Christian and obstinate and pliable. And so the two of them come out there and they're talking and obstinate and pliable are there for a purpose. And that purpose is to convince him to come back to the city of destruction. Come on back with us. What are you doing? And he turns it around and says, you should come with me because you live in the city of destruction and you're under the judgment of God and you need to come. And so he says, be content, good neighbors, and go along with me. What? said obstinate and leave our friends and our comforts behind us. I don't want to go. I've got friends. I've got a comfortable life. Don't we face that now when we're trying to lead somebody to Christ? They think, what will people think? What about my life? It's not going to be as comfortable. Yes, said Christian, for that was his name, because that all which you forsake is not worthy to be compared with a little of that which I am seeking to enjoy. And if you will go along with me and hold it, you shall fare as I myself, for there where I go is enough and to spare. Come away and prove my words. I love that. Come away and come with me and you'll see what I'm saying is true. What things, said obstinate, what are the things you seek since you leave all the world to find them? Christian, I seek an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away. And it is laid up in heaven 
and safe there to be bestowed at the time appointed on them that diligently seek it. Read it so, if you will, in my book. This is one of my favorite lines in Pilgrim's Progress. Tush, said Obstinate, away with your book. I actually wrote a whole Beacon article about that. Away with your book. Is that not the world's attitude toward the Scripture? Get that book away from me. I'm not interested in what your book says. Tush, away with your book. Will you come back with us or not? Now, it's interesting. What is motivating Christian here? Up to this point, we've only been hearing about what we would call negative motivations. What would negative motivations be? Fear. Right? He's afraid. What's he afraid of? He's afraid of wrath. Should we fear wrath? Should we fear hell? Should we fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell? Please say yes. Yes, we should fear hell. We should fear wrath. It is something to be feared. But is that the only motivation in the Christian life? What's motivating him now in his conversation with obstinate and pliable? What's he thinking about? He's thinking about pleasure. He's thinking about heaven, the celestial city. He's thinking about an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled kept in heaven for him. And there is the great inducement of the gospel. Infinite negative and infinite positive. Fleeing the wrath to come which will last forever and ever and coming into heaven which will also last forever and ever. And yet here's obstinate, completely unpersuaded. And why? Because he has no respect for the book. And that's the only place you're going to find it that you live in the city of destruction and that there is such a thing as a celestial city. You find it in the book. And if you have no respect for the book, you're going to have obstinate attitude. Will you come back with us or no? No, not I, saith the other, because I have laid my hand to the plow. Come then, neighbor pliable, said obstinate. Let us turn again and go without him. There's a company of these crazed-headed coxcombs that when they take a fancy by the end are wiser in their own eyes than seven men that can render a reason. Then said pliable, do not revile. If what the good Christian says is true, the things he looks after are better than ours. My heart inclines to go with my neighbor. So here's pliable. He's willing to stand up to obstinate a little bit. He's saying, that sounds pretty good. What is motivating pliable at this particular moment? What is he interested in? Mike, what do you think? Yeah, he's interested in the positive side. Has he grappled with the negative? Not at all. And we're going to see that more in a minute, okay? Because they're heading to the slew of despond. And we'll see a significant difference between Christian and pliable in the slew of despond. But at any rate, they start to go on. And Obstinate said, you know, what are you, crazy too? And so he goes back and Pliable continues on with Christian. Come, neighbor Pliable, how do you do? I'm glad you persuaded to go along with me had even obstinate himself but felt what I have felt of the powers and terrors of what is yet unseen, he would not thus lightly have given us the back. Come, neighbor Christian, since there is none but the two of us here, tell me now further what the things are, how to be enjoyed, whither we are going. Christian, I can better conceive of them with my mind than speak of them with my tongue, but yet since you are desirous to know, I will read of them in my book. Pliable, and do you think that the words of your book are certainly true? Yes, verily, for it was made by him that cannot lie, said Christian. Well said. What things are they? asked Pliable. Well, said Christian, there's an endless kingdom to be inhabited, an everlasting life to be given us, that we may inhabit that kingdom forever. Well said, said Pliable. And what else? Well, there are crowns of glory to be given us and garments that will make us shine like the sun in the firmament of heaven. That is very pleasant, said Pliable. And what else? Well, there shall be no more crying nor sorrow, for he that is the owner of that place 
will wipe all our tears from our eyes. And, said Pliable, what company shall we have there? Well, there, sh there will be seraphims and cherubims, creatures that will dazzle your eyes to look on them. There also you shall meet with thousands and ten thousands that have gone before us to that place. None of them are hurtful, but loving and holy, every one walking in the sight of God and standing in his presence with acceptance forever. In a word, there we shall see the elders with their golden crowns. There we shall see the holy virgins with their golden harps. There we shall see men that by the world were cut in pieces, burned in flames, eaten of beasts, drowned in the seas for the love that they bear to the Lord of the place all well and clothed with immortality as with a garment. Pliable said, The hearing of this is enough to ravish one's heart. But are these things to be enjoyed? How shall we get to be sharers thereof? Christian answered, The Lord, the governor of the country, hath recorded that in this book, the substance of which is, if we are truly willing to have it, he will bestow it upon us freely. It's a gift. You know what's incredible is that all the things that he's written are true. It's coming right out of Scripture. You can just connect everything that he said to some text of Scripture. Well, I'm sure that Pliable at this point is, is drooling. And he is. And he says, Well, my good companion, glad I am to hear of these things. Come on, let us mend our pace. What does he mean? Let's hurry up. Pick it up a little bit. Christian answers, I cannot go so fast as I would by reason of this burden on my back. Now, here's a difference between Christian and Pliable. Christian has a huge burden on his back, bowed under the weight of it. Pliable does not. Why so? Why is there this difference between Christian and Pliable? Christian's under conviction of sin, and Pliable has no conviction of sin at all. And so, as long as it's positive, as long as things are going well, as long as it's attractive and Encouraging, pliable will continue. But as soon as there is trouble, what's going to happen to pliable? He's going to go home. And uh, we've seen that, haven't we, in the Christian life? You know, they want the good things. What they don't want is trouble. Well, look at the map. Is there trouble ahead? Oh, it's a little despondent. It's nothing. I mean, that's baby talk compared to the trials that he's going to be facing. Wait till he gets to the doubting castle and giant despair who lives to destroy him day after day, right? That's the most severe trial I think he faces. But it's a terrible, terrible thing that's facing. Pliable's not ready for that, is he? Well, now I saw in my dream that just as they had ended this talk, they drew near to a very miry slough that was in the midst of the plain. And they, being heedless, did both fall suddenly into the bog. The name of the slough was Despond. Here, therefore, they wallowed for a time, being grievously bedaubed with the dirt. And Christian, because of the burden that was on his back, began to sink in the mire. Then said Pliable, Ah, neighbor Christian, where are you now? Truly, said Christian, I do not know. At that, Pliable began to be offended and angrily said to his fellow, Is this the happiness you have told me all this while of? If we have such ill speed at our first setting out, what may we expect betwixt this and our journey's end? May I get out again with my life? You shall possess the brave country alone for me. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire on that side of the slough, which was next to his own house. He hadn't made much progress. <laughs> and so away he went, and Christian saw him no more. 
One thing that you notice is both of them fall into the slew of despond. Now, what is the slew of, slew of despond? Despond means discouragement or depression. What is Bunyan getting at? Trials. But of what type? There's a certain type of trial going on here. Okay. Sense of rejection. He's talking about depression. It's an internal trial, isn't he? Isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's a sense of depression. And see what happens is conviction of sin goes side by side with this kind of depression. It doesn't have to, but it can be. So that you become so despondent that salvation cannot happen for you. And so you get, get sucked into this bog of discouragement and depression. We don't know much about it. The Puritans knew a lot about it. But we don't know as much about it because we're very rarely under conviction of sin. And so they're in this bog. What do you notice about the difference between Christian and pliable concerning the bog? He's got a huge burden on his back and pliable does not and so therefore what? Christian sinks down. What happens to pliable? He jumps out and he gets out on the wrong side as David said but he gets out and on his own too. What does that mean? It's very light. A very momentary discouragement for him and he's gone. He'll reject the whole scheme because it's brought him into trouble and he's right back at his house again. You see? Meanwhile, the Christian with the sense of conviction is sinking down in depression and he needs help. He can't get out on his own. Tony? reminds me also of the seed on rocky soil. Uh, it refers to the person who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. With joy he gets the word. But he has no root. That means he gets no moisture. You know, you think about this, the seed with no root, when the sun comes up, the, the plants are scorched and they're withered, but the, the, the seed with the root doesn't wither because they're able to get a hidden source of water that enable them to survive the trial, right? But if you're up on the rocky soil, you've got no hidden source. All the surface water evaporates with the sun of the trial, the, the persecution, the difficulty, and you have nothing with which you can sustain yourself. Why? Because you have no real relationship with God. You're not really connected to God. And so as soon as there's any trouble at all, you're gone. You disappear. Jesus covered this in the parable of the seed and the soils, which was, I think, his most important parable. And so I think pliable is the rocky soil guy. He's a joyful starter, but not a finisher. And as soon as there's any kind of difficulty or trouble, he's, he's gone. He's finished. All right, well, like I said, Christian needs help. And in Pilgrim's Progress, if you need help, who's going to come help you? Help, right? That's the name of the guy who comes to help. His name is Help. And so he gives him a hand out and lifts him up out. And, uh, but he gives a reason first. He said, how did you fall in here? And, and Christian said, fear followed me so hard that I fell... I fled the, ne the next way and I fell in. There were steps to get through. There's a way to get through without falling into the slough of despond. But he was so afraid and was running so hard he wasn't paying attention and fell in. And so help says, then he said, give me thy hand. So he gave him his hand and drew him out and set him on solid ground and bid him to go on his way. And so he, at that point they talk about why is the slough there and, and why hasn't the king of the highway fixed it? And he said he has, but uh, 
because of people's hearts and their tendency toward depression, discouragement. Uh, you know, he's put in 16 ox carts full of stuff and it keeps sinking in anyway. So you have to follow the steps in order to get through. The next thing that happens in the story is Pliable goes home. All right? So Christian didn't see Pliable anymore, but we get one last note on Pliable. Now I saw in my dream that by this time Pliable was got home to his house again so that his neighbors came to visit him. And some of them called him wise man for coming back and some of him, some called him fool for hazarding himself with Christian. Others again did mock at his cowardliness saying, surely since you have begun to venture, I would not have been so base as to have given out after just a few difficulties. So his neighbors at least can see right through this guy. Say, I mean, you started, you should, I mean, come on, that's just the first little problem and you gave up. This is exactly what Jesus was referring to when he talked about counting the cost. Remember he said anyone who sits, who's going to build a tower, doesn't he, he first sits down and calculates if he's got enough resource to finish the job. Because if he doesn't, his neighbors are going to stand around and mock him. You started, but you didn't finish. That's exactly what happens to Pliable. Hmm. So Pliable sat sneaking among them for a while. But at last he got more confidence and then they all turned their tails and began to deride poor Christian behind his back and thus much concerning Pliable. I think that's so stark, isn't it? In the end, I mean, at first for a little while, he's like a dog with his tail between his legs, kind of slinking around. But eventually he starts to make fun of Christian just like the rest of them are. And that's the end of the story for Pliable. Pretty tragic thing, really, when you stop and think about it. I've met Pliables in my life. I've met Pliables in my witnessing. And Jesus covered Pliable in his parable, The Rocky Soil. The next thing that happens to Christian is that he meets a man named Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And this is a very, very critical thing. It brings us right into the heart of some deep theology, some Lutheran issues concerning morality and legality and what it can do for you. Mr. Worldly Wise Man comes and asks him about the burden on his back. He says, how is it that you're running or walking with such a, in such a burdened manner? You're bent over with a burden on your back. And he said, uh, where did you get this burden? And uh, he talks about this. And the Worldly Wise Man looks at him and says, you know, above all things, I would advise you to get rid of the burden. This is what worldly wise man said. I would advise thee then that thou with all speed get thyself rid of thy burden, for thou wilt never be settled in thy, in thy mind till then, nor canst thou enjoy the benefits of the blessing which God has bestowed upon thee till then. Now listen to Christian's an answer. That is that which I seek for, even to be rid of this heavy burden, but I get it, but get it off myself I cannot nor is there any man in our country that can take it off my shoulders. Therefore, I am going this way as I told you that I may be rid of the burden. He's saying there's nobody that can take this burden from me. Well, a worldly wise man said, who told you that this is the way to be rid of your burden? Well, a man named Evangelist came and pointed me in the way. He said, uh-oh, Evangelist. I've heard about this guy, nothing but trouble. And so worldly wise man starts to criticize him. He says, there is not a more dangerous or troublesome way in this world than that unto which he has directed you and that you shall find if you will be ruled by his counsel. You have met with something as I perceive already for the dirt of the slough of despond is already upon you. But that slough is just the beginning of sorrows that do attend those that go on that way. Hear me since I am older than you. You are like to meet with on the way which you go wearisomeness, painfulness, hunger, perils, nakedness, sword, lions, dragons, darkness, and in a word, death and whatnot. These things are certainly true, having been confirmed by many testimonies. And why should a man so carelessly cast away himself, giving heed to a stranger? So what is worldly wise man saying there about the way that's ahead of him? 
What is he, how is he characterizing the journey that's facing Krishna at this time? It's troublesome. It's dangerous. It's too difficult, right? What's scary is the thing that worldly wise men said is true, isn't it? But he's about to give him some bad advice. Now listen to Krishna's response, and this is phenomenal. He said, Why, sir, this burden upon my back is more terrible to me than all those things which you have mentioned. Naomi thinks I care not what I meet with in the way. If so be, I can also meet with deliverance from my burden. Isn't that incredible? That's the response of a truly convicted heart. You say, I don't care what I face that I might be free from the wrath to come. Tanya? That's right. Those things are all coming. That's right, Tanya. They're all coming. And worldly wise men, but he doesn't believe it because he's a worldly wise man. He doesn't. He's not thinking about the world to come. He's thinking about this world. And and then at that point, worldly wise men said, "Well, how did you come to this burden to begin with?" Well, by reading this book in my hand, said Christian. I thought so. And it has happened unto thee as to other weak men who, meddling with things too high for them, do suddenly fall into thy distractions. Which distractions do not uh, only unman men? as thine, I perceive, has done to thee, but they run them into desperate ventures to obtain they know not what. This is a very subtle thing what's going on here. He's saying, you read the Bible on your own and look what it's gotten to you. Nothing but trouble. Put it aside. You can't understand the Bible on your own. It's too high for you. Rather, you should have gotten some good counsel. Well, do you have any good counsel to give? Actually, I do. I know a man who lives in a town called Morality and his name is Legality and he is an expert at helping you get your burden off your back. He's good at taking burdens off backs. So all you have to do is just go down to this town, Morality, and there's this man, Legality, and this is how he describes him. A very judicious man and a man of a very good name that has skill to help men off with such burdens as thine are from thy shoulders. Yea, to my knowledge, he hath done a great deal of good this way. I and besides, he hath skill to cure those that are somewhat crazed in their wits with their burdens. To him, as I said, Thou mayest go and be helped presently. His house is not quite a mile from this place. And if he should not be at home, he hath a pretty young son to his, uh, man to his son whose name is Civility. And that can do it to speak on as well as the old gentleman himself. What is worldly wise man? What counsel and advice is he giving Christian concerning his burden? What is Bunyan talking about here? What's the name of the town? Morality. And what's the name of the man who's going to help him? Legality. So what advice is worldly wise men giving him to help him with his burdens? Mike, what do you think? Work it out. The law. Be a good man. Be a good person. Are there people that have chosen that route? Oh, more than you can count. As a matter of fact, I think that is the other religion other than grace. I think it's the big diversion in the Christian life. And so in effect, he's saying, you want help with your burden? Start being a good person. Start doing good things, doing good deeds, helping people, doing right things, following the law as best you can. And if you do, your burden will go away. Does it work? Does it get rid of a burden? Well, think. All right. Careful how you answer. Right. Did Pliable have a burden? How about Obstinate? Did he have a burden? No. Could Christian therefore get rid of his burden at legal at morality? I think he could. 
I think the burden's gone. The burden is your own sense of judgment under God, right? It's your own sense of conviction. Can you get rid of that by being a good person, by morality? Yeah, you really can. And then you can become self-righteous, right? You become prideful. You become like the Pharisee. Before God, you have a burden because all of us have a burden. We're all under the wrath of God, but we're not talking about that because Pliable didn't have a burden and obstinate had none. And so Christian could also have gotten rid of hers, his, namely a sense of his own guilt before God. Morality works very well to get rid of that, doesn't it? It works very well. Religiosity, going to church, being a good person, certain habit patterns and practices, Phariseeism. Manichaeism, the Manichaeism. Yeah. Yeah. He was going towards the sort of, you know, legal, you know, spiritual religion, but he was never satisfied because he actually didn't to Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're exactly right. Let's find out what happens to Christian as he starts going toward morality. If you are truly called of God, what's going to happen to your burden? It's going to double and triple. And that's exactly what happens to Christian. And that is the grace of God, isn't it? Because, uh, you know, he's not going to have his burden helped off. It's just like uh, Luther, when he tried to do it by fastings and prayer and all this under the conviction of God, it only increased his conviction. He only could only try to do more and more. And the more he tried, the worse it got. That's exactly what's going to happen to him. Now, it says here, now was Christian somewhat at a stand. He was he was um, confused what to do. He'd gotten this advice from worldly wise man, but it, he's, con- he's, he's contradicting what evangelists had told him to do. And one of the basic principles of Pilgrim's Progress is don't leave the way. I mean, you're going to learn again and again. If you get off that path, you're in for trouble every single time. Uh, Our family have been reading a book called The Golden Thread, and it follows the same concept. And it's the idea of a guy kind of traveling through, and he's literally holding on to a golden thread. And as he is tempted to leave, the thread starts to get stiff and won't let him go where he wants to go. So in order to go there, he's got to let go of the thread. And several times he lets go and the thing floats up away from him and he can't get it back. You see what I'm saying? And it has to do with walking in the power of the Spirit, keeping in step with God, staying in the path of righteousness. You let it go for temptation. It may be a long time before you get it back. And, uh, you know, the point is don't leave that path. Well, he's at a stand. He doesn't know what to do. But then he decides to leave. The worldly wise man says, Do you see that yonder hill? Yes, very well. By that hill you must go. And the first house you come at is his. So Christian turned out of his way. I mean, you just underline that. Whenever that happens in Pilgrim's Progress, you're heading for nothing but trouble. So Christian turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help. But behold, when he was got now hard by the hill, it seemed so high, and also that side of it that was next to the wayside did hang over so much that Christian was afraid to venture uh, further lest the hill should fall on his head. Wherefore, there he stood and wadded not or didn't know what to do. Also, his burden now seemed heavier to him than while he was on his way. There also came flashes of fire out of the hill that made Christian afraid that he should be burned. Here, therefore, he sweat and did quake for fear. And now he began to be sorry that he had taken Mr. Worldly Wiseman's counsel. And with that, he saw evangelists coming to meet him. Mm Mm-mm. And at the sight of uh, whom he began to blush for shame. So Evangelist drew nearer and nearer and coming up to him, looked upon him with severe and dreadful countenance and thus began to reason with Christian. What dost thou here, Christian? What are you doing here? (laughs) Oh, man. 
I mean, you just feel. There's a sense of shame. He's saying, I didn't tell you to come this way. This is not the way I told you. Why are you here? Well, I didn't believe you. That's the bottom line, isn't it? I believe worldly wise men and not you. That's right. It's exactly like that, Jenny. God's come and saying, what's going on here? <laughs> but here is evangelist and he says, what, do, what dost thou here, Christian? Said he, at which words Christian knew not what to answer. What are you going to say? Mm-hmm. Where are you? That's right. They left the path. They left the path of righteousness, the way of righteousness. He stood there speechless. Then Evangelist said further, Art not thou the man that I found crying outside the walls of the city of destruction? Yes, dear sir, I am the man. Did I not direct thee to the way to the little wicked gate? Yes, dear sir, said Christian. How is it then that thou art so quickly turned aside? For thou art now, thou art now out of the way. Very significant. You're out of the road. You're missing it. Fascinating. He says, you're out of the way. Well, I met with a gentleman so soon as I had got over the slough of despond who persuaded me that I might in the village before me find a man that could take off my burden. What was he? Well, he looked like a gentleman and talked much to me and got me at last to yield, so I came hither. But when I beheld this hill and how it hangs over the way, suddenly I made a stand lest it should fall on my head. What does the hill represent? That big hill. Can you think of a mountain in the Bible that it might represent? Mount Sinai. That's right, Jenny. Mount Sinai with its Ten Commandments, with its rumblings and its threatenings and its judgment. The book of Galatians says uh, very clearly that, you are, that no one will be justified by the works of the law. You cannot be justified by keeping that covenant. It only brings wrath and judgment. And so it stands for Mount Sinai. The evangelist starts to tell him the danger of worldly wise man's advice. What said he then? He bid me with speed to get rid of my burden. I told him it was ease that I sought. And said I, I am therefore going to yonder gate to receive further direction how I may get to the place of deliverance. So he said he would show me a better way and short, not so attended with difficulties as the way. So evangelist listens to this and then evangelist speaks to him and rebukes him. This is what evangelist said. Then evangelist said, stand still a little that I may show you the words of God. And so a uh, Christian stood trembling. Then said Evangelist, See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. Hebrews 12:25. He said, Moreover, now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Hebrews 10:38. He also did thus apply them. Thou art the man that running into this misery, thou hast begun to reject the counsel of the Most High and to draw back thy foot from the way of peace, even almost to the hazarding of thy perdition. Then Christian fell down at his foot as though dead, crying, Woe is me, for I am undone. At the sight of which evangelist caught him by the right hand, saying, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. One of the things that is most poignant for me in Pilgrim's Progress is how seriously Christian deals with his own sin. Later on, he's, uh, next time I think we're going to see, he falls asleep and he loses his scroll maybe two times from now, and he is extremely hard on himself at that point. Um, other points like uh, Doubting Castle, very, very severe on himself for having left the way. We are very trifling with sin. It's not really that big a deal for us to leave the way. But you notice evangelist works first to bring him to conviction and then lifts him up with a word of encouragement. Humble yourself and God will 
raise you up. And so he does. Well, we're about out of time. I want to, the, the concluding point that I look at, and, and the, the fascinating thing is, he has not gone through the wicked gate yet, nor has he come to the cross of Christ yet. Therefore, according to Bunyan, what is the case for him? He's not saved yet. That's amazing, isn't it? We look at it, and, and what does it take for somebody to be saved? Well, pray this printed prayer here. That's all you got to do. The back of the pamphlet. If you pray these words, it's almost like a magic talisman. Maybe you don't even need to pray them. Just cut it out and hang it around your neck, and you'll be fine. Pray of Jabez or anything. I mean, just something there. And you'll do it, and that'll be fine. Look at all the journeying that Christian does before he really is converted. All of the conviction of sin, all the scripture, all of the, the wrestling that he does before he finally comes to the wicked gate, at which I think is his conversion, and the cross at which he understands and accepts the conversion so that the burden falls off his back. We're too light. We're too quick, aren't we? Too easy. Got to do the law work first. Any final comments about this first section that we've looked at here? If I would encourage you, just look at the guide that I've given you. And the next stage we're going to look at next week is from the wicked gate to interpreter's house. Probably my favorite part of the entire Pilgrim's Progress is the interpreter's house. The details that the interpreter teaches him, I think about probably every day, especially the bowl of fire at the wall. That's my favorite of all. So go ahead and read ahead of time. If you can get a copy, you can get them at any bookstore. Uh, you can get it off the, you don't even need to pay for it. Get it off the internet. Download it. It won't be pretty, but uh, the words will all be there. You know, print it out and read it. And uh, next time we'll talk some more about it. Landis, would you close us in prayer? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.